Thank you to everyone who is helping us with our transcripts. You're doing a great job helping us make sure they're published together with the podcast. If you'd also like to help out with publishing the podcast, or even with gathering links for the show notes, just email us at hey at uxpodcast.com. H-E-Y or H-E-J. UX Podcast Episode 267. Hello, I'm Pat Axpel. And I'm James Roy Lawson. And this is UX Podcast. We're in Stockholm, Sweden, and you're listening in 199 countries and territories in the world, from Cameroon to Italy. Sometimes when you emphasize it like that, Perry, it sounds like you're surprised they're all in this world. But I, I always make an effort to not get caught on territory because I know it's coming and I'm sort of hesitant. Uh, so, so, And you're listening in 199 countries and territories in the world from Cameroon to Italy. Am I showing off now? A little you bit. You are. Sorry. You've been practicing in the shower. I have. That's what I do every day. We came across the phrase UX theatre and... Me and Per weren't completely sure what that meant, and we definitely didn't know where it came from. So we thought we'd find out. And we found Tanya Snook. She's a user experience designer, founder, and co-chair of Canucks, co-host of the Government of Canada UX Network, and you'll find her on Twitter as Spider Girl. We've been following each other for years. And on her very active blog, SpiderGirl.com. Now you're showing off by saying you've been following each other for years. I know, I know. And it's Spider... (laughs) Girl. I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's not girl. Spelled I think exactly I say like that. girl, but it's the okay. girl with the G-R-R-L. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's, it's, and spider with S-P-Y. You're right. So, so we've got to be really clear you, about that. You, for a podcast, I think you're right, Pat. But in, <laughs> it was in January 2018, uh, Tanya uh, started a, twi- a Twitter thread about how some user exper- experience projects tend to pay lip service to um, user-centered design rather than being actual user-centered design. She coined the phrase UX theater to try and summarize this and capture this. Then she expanded on her tweets in a blog post. And then she expanded on the blog post with a poster, um, which you can download from our website. And her very thorough poster states, it seems there are almost more projects branding themselves as being founded in UX than there are projects actually founded in UX. And naturally, we wanted to know more about Tanya's thinking around this issue and how we can address it. And stay tuned for our post-interview reflections. So we might as well just dive straight in and ask the question. Yes. What is UX (laughs) theatre? That is a great question. (laughs) UX theater is the application of any sort of design methodology without actually including a single user in the process. Um, It's becoming a lot more prevalent as executives are learning the term user experience, but their teams aren't really empowered to do all the work that UX entails. Right. And and, in some ways, it feels so obvious when you say it like that, because... (laughs) We all know it, but it's like a lot of people seem to have been afraid to call it out. And as soon as you started talking about it, it was like, oh, I know exactly what you mean. I say this all the time, but people weren't talking about it and you you put a label on it. And I think it started with a 
tweet storm that you wrote or something like that. It did. Tell us the backstory. So uh, it started because I think there's a lot that we can do about it as designers. And I was seeing it more and more. I, I've been uh, half my career in the tech sector and half in government. And we've gone through a couple of waves of UX prominence, I'll say, in the government. And it was sort of heading on a downswing again um, a few years ago. And and I was seeing a lot of projects that were touting themselves as being user-centered because it was a very big buzzword at the time. And they were not doing UX. They were, they were doing theatrics. And it was driving me insane. And I was having a lot of conversations with folks about how um, their projects were heading off the rails. And I decided to put up the the tweet storm uh i have a pretty long commute downtown and that's where most of my twitter threads happen when in normal circumstances so i was sitting on the bus and i was writing this whole twitter thread and when i put it up it was it was quite surprising actually how much response there was initially and that's why eventually i turned it into a blog post where i could get into more of the details and then the poster Um, but yeah it was just becoming so obvious to me that at the executive level, there was a lot of push for user-centered design. It was becoming part of policy in the government in particular, but it was being misinterpreted and it was not being implemented properly. So we were kind of perpetuating this design theatrics instead of actual design, and it was breaking my heart. I'm wondering, I mean, is it the case that we, the, the, the normal state is that we're performing theater? And the exception is when we're doing good design. <laughs> is that too depressing a question? Oh, a statement. <laughs> You're breaking my heart all over again. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> that was actually one of my takeaways from your poster because I think it, even at the top it says, it seems there are almost more projects branding themselves as being founded in UX and user-centered design than there are projects actually founded in it. It's well, and it's somewhat true because UX is still really nascent, right? I mean, how long has user experience design been around as a formal um, practice? It's it's only been a couple of decades. You know, we're not accounting, we're not we're not lawyers. There's no certification, there's no structure, there's no real definition. Every diagram that shows what encompasses UX is a little bit different, and it's so hard to explain to non-designers what user experience design is. And I think the biggest challenge is explaining that it's the outcome and not the methodology. We mm-hmm. get bolted on at the end of development or you know, at the end of other practices, or we're a very, very tiny part of the overall process in many, many organizations. And I think trying to explain that there's a whole set of, of tools and resources and methodologies and processes you have to follow in order to generate the user experience. I think that's something that is lost in outside of our industry. And I think we don't necessarily have the right elevator pitches to explain it to people. So it makes it really hard to build it in, in organizations that are immature in UX already. Hmm. I think oh, maybe it's the case as well that the way in which design works or digital design works, um, it's it's kind of it is the easy route out to not involve the user. And I think there's probably a whole lot of proxies you can use instead of the user mm. and it looks convincing. 
<laughs> Absolutely. And that concept of role play is very attractive because it's it doesn't cost a lot. And people think that they already know their users. Um, I joined one organization where I asked if I could see all of their previous research. Uh, to I was doing a service design blueprint and I wanted to see all the research that they had done on their website. And um, they told us that that wasn't necessary because they know their users very, very well. (laughs) And we hear that a lot. Mm. I had um, a client that I did a workshop for where we ran through personas and I was very clear that they should bring research into the workshop so that we could use it. And at the end, they told me that they had access to users, but they thought that maybe they should just keep going with these personas that they had created in the room because it would be easier. And I lost my <laughs> lost my mind and was mm-hmm. very adamant that, no, if you have access to real people, please, please, please incorporate those real people into your process. But it's that, you know, the return on investment. It's it's how quickly they can expedite the project We're you know, we're always working without enough money and enough time to actually do things properly. And so where we can cut corners, it's very, very attractive to do so, especially if the leadership isn't fully bought into the concept of user experience design and user centered methodologies. Um, And also that focus on on digital. You know, we we go far beyond digital. I currently run a program. And, you know, digital is only one channel that we use to actually deliver this whole program. And so even just trying to educate folks on the fact that user-centered design extends beyond just the digital sphere and that it can be used for things such as programs and and services that are delivered omni-channel, that's something that people still don't quite seem to grasp either. So there's this default where UX is digital and thinking about it broader than that and thinking about it to serve whether it's employees or to serve external users across other channels is, is also something that it just doesn't seem to be really top of mind because the push is so much for digital in the UX sphere right now. And that, con- that conversation of confusion about UX UI um, you know, that especially waters it down, where if you think it's UI, then you're not really thinking about broader than digital. As you're saying this, I'm realizing, because I, I read a lot of in your blog post and on, on the poster, you used the term usability testing. And I realized that before UX was even a term that I used, uh, I was a usability engineer and I did usability testing and research. And th- those were the terms we used. And now that we talk about UX, we don't even use the term usability testing much anymore. We talk about design thinking. So we're thinking more than we're testing. Uh, so it, 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 it's weird to me that actually the terminology has made it more confusing over time because it's trying to encompass so much and nobody really knows. And that actually, I think that contributes to the availability of turning to UX theater because you can always say that, well, I do it a different way than they do. Design thinking and everyone is a designer have been incredibly mm. difficult to work with in this context as well, right? Um, you know, design thinking has become a substitute for actual user-centered design, and that in itself leads to UX theater. And it's it's not necessarily because design thinking is bad; it's because it gets misused. You know, it really was about helping the management level take a more deliberate deliberate approach to innovating, but it's applied as a design methodology, and and especially in organizations that have low UX maturity, but then claim to be user-centered design. Um, I always joke that just because everyone can do math doesn't mean they're an accountant. 
And, you know, the whole concept of everyone is a designer has really lessened the value of UX in organizations. Um, just because you can bring other people in to participate and collaborate doesn't mean that they should then be considered designers officially. And where I've seen this go bad is on projects where instead of bringing in actual UX practitioners to do the work, they'll take somebody who's experienced in the subject matter and make them a designer. And so they'll say, well, who better to redesign the service than the person who's been delivering the service, at which I always say service designers, service designers are always better at designing the service than the person who's mm. delivering the service. Mm. So yeah, we've seen where these concepts of design thinking and, and everyone is a designer have actually reduced the focus on actual user-centered design, hiring actual practitioners and taking these these corner cutting measures to deliver services and products that that thing then you said about the the domain specialists um uh, it's a it's actually a really fascinating thing because it almost always happens you need you need to bring in the people who are domain specialists because you want to be aware of that that sphere that world that you're going to be designing for um but uh, i hadn't really probably thought about the consequence of that, that you end up increasing the risk of design theatre, UX theatre, because you brought in that person with so much, all these people with so much domain knowledge, that it spills over and, mm. and, and colours the, the work that you're trying to do and the real research you want to do with real users. Especially if those people are then assigned design roles. Yeah. So in this one project in particular, rather than go out and hire a bunch of UXers, they hired the practitioners to be the design team. And it, you know, it really brings so much bias and so much assumptions about their users that it really colors the solutions that they were proposing even in early days. And it's unfortunate because there was a really great opportunity to have those as key stakeholders and key collaborators in the design rather than making them the design team. And I think a lot of the, the ability to move the solution forward in a user-centered way was actually evaporated by giving the practitioners these roles because, because they did have all this experience and all this bias. And mm -hmm. when they actually went to do research, it was just a series of workshops. It was 16 weeks of workshops internally with internal users. No actual users were harmed in, you know, it was not internal users, sorry, internal staff. So no actual users were harmed in the nature of their user experience design. Um, and, and it was unfortunate because when I called them on it, they, they asked me to advise on the project and, you know, it wasn't mine or anything, but they just brought me in because I knew the folks running it. Um, and I asked, when does the research happen? And they said these 16 weeks. And I was like, that's not, that's not user research. Like, no, 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 no. Um, but they didn't understand the difference because it was mm. practitioners who were running the show instead of actual designers and researchers. So that's mm. where this ended up being, um, it, it sort of perpetuated the issues throughout the whole life cycle of the project. And, and it was a rather large project as well. So, mm. you know, it's something that had a pretty significant impact and, and a quite a large breadth. And unfortunately, these decisions made up front by the executives who were staffing the project then trickle down into what the final solution looks like um, and how well it serves users. So you can imagine that there were quite a few shortcomings in the final design. Oh, yeah. So interesting. I've been working on a project last year uh, where I actually had to also 
uh, talk to the specialists because they are the p people who educate the users who are in the thousands. But I also talk to the users and have workshops with them and interview them. And I go back to the experts and I say, well, well this is what they're saying. And the experts say, well, that's not the way they're supposed to do it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, that may be the case, but this is how they're doing it. So it, they won't accept reality even when I tell them what's happening and what's going on out there, which is really interesting as well. Absolutely. I had uh, an executive that, so there was a, a push in the government at one point to test your thing with the executive, which I thought was kind of weird. I mean, I understand walking them through it and, and making sure that they understand what it does, um, but actually testing it with them seemed kind of weird because they're not the core audience for the things that we're necessarily building. Um, so we had presented to an executive a few times and, and had walked him through the, the entire process of what we were doing and, and the progress and everything to make sure that we had buy-in. And when we got to our third round where we were really, really close to actually launching, um, the, we explained all the usability testing and all the feedback and he started disputing the text on the screens. And he said, you know, I don't like that text. No, and he, he got very angry. Um, we were quite taken aback mm. and we told him this had been iterative and we'd gone through three rounds of testing and, and we'd tweak the language in between. Now it was testing mm. very, very well. And he told mm. us that users don't know what they want. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh. Right. So fortunately, my leadership um, pushed back very hard on that and we, we sort of went ahead anyway with with the mm. direction that we had gotten and, and we did a lot of documentation to to reinforce that this was user driven and everything else but I mean mm. that person could have actually canceled our project um, yeah. and so it was quite a big risk for my my leaders to go in and, and fight this but you know at some points at the executive level even though the words are coming out of their mouths, right? Like the actual understanding of the importance of user feedback can, can be diminished, again, if the organization's not very mature. And so that's where having the right people in, in the right roles, doing the right processes, having the documentation, having the proof, but also having very strong leadership who is willing to stand up to the executives and push back is key. And and especially in a government context where I'm, where I'm currently working, it's not always something you're gonna encounter um, because of the way that the hierarchy works. So I was incredibly fortunate on that particular project, but mm. in another project where you know the hierarchy might've been a little bit more brittle, uh, it might not have been an opportunity for pushback and the entire user experience could have been compromised because this one executive didn't actually understand yeah what we were doing and why it was significant. I mean, it's, it's almost like you need to, need to counter UX theater with a bit of UX theater yourself. <laughs> I was thinking about that, you know, because ultimately it's down to maturity, isn't it? The UX maturity. And, and both of your stories are talking about how the, the one who's immature is unaware of their immaturity. So, so to, get, to guide them in the in the nicest way possible, or the organization in the nicest ways possible, you perhaps have to indulge in a degree of theater of your own to lead, oh, maybe not theater, but you, you, you're carving a path, aren't you? And, and you've got to lead them to the right place. And that, the straight route might not be the nicest, easiest, simplest route. It's true. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to advocate for doing theater to to, to block theater, but 
But the role of the UXer seems to be changing and evolving a little bit. And maybe that's because we are still in, you know, somewhat immature practice. But there's certainly a, a level of advocacy and evangelism built into our jobs. And I know that for as an individual contributor for the longest time, I found that so frustrating. I, why do I have to beg to do my job, right? Why can't I just do my job? But you have to explain UX while doing UX and you have to teach UX while doing UX. That is just part of it because it is so new and people are applying it you know, in all sorts of different ways that aren't necessarily how we intend them to be applied. So, you know, sometimes you might have to step back and make sure that those around you actually do understand the value of UX. So you might have to consider how you build UX into your everyday work for your own delivery using UX methods and tools to perform the work internally in addition to using them to do the UX projects per se. Um, the organization that I'm in right now didn't have a lot of UX maturity when I joined. And so, you know, we've been going through a process for the last three and a half years of encouraging them to participate a lot more in design. Um, my team used to be more of an oversight team for the program, and I rebranded it as a service design team. So we design the products and services that are used to deliver outreach. And I include the regional outreach teams in our processes. So they're part of working groups. They participate in workshops. Um, we go and ask them for data and we show them, we bring them into the room to actually work the data and, and help us advance design. So it's been really nice because there was a whole, when we delivered the service blueprint, which is end to end, it's everything from the policies that apply to us all the way through to the service delivery. Um, they started using it to in their own planning sessions in region to figure out how to do outreach to different audiences. And so, you know, when we were physically in the office, they were asking us, can you send us a copy, a physical copy of a poster of the service blueprint? We want to put it in our meeting room so that we can use it and apply it and look through the journey and and actually use it to do our planning. That's something they never had talked about before. So we've been able to change the culture, change the language. You know, everyone talks about the the journey now. They talk about the blueprint. They they come to the workshops, and we've been um, we've created really tactical approaches to doing workshops so that you know they come in. They're sixty minutes. They do things. They know exactly what the outcomes are going to be. We post them on our internal wiki, and so there's a lot of feedback loop of how their contributions actually move the design forward for the program. And that has met, met with a lot of um, openness. And they've been really, like the, the regional directors are really adamant about giving us their people when we want to do work. And, you know, there's no blocking. There's no, this is a waste of our time. They contribute right in. And so it's been great because we've been able to do a lot of work. And when we did the service evaluation, um, we had 275 recommendations for improving the service. And we've been able over the last two and a half years to deliver on almost 200 of those, which is ridiculous. I run a team of five people. And, you know, because we've been using the extended team in region, um, and they've been an active part of this and we've been evangelizing it the whole time. Our team is really 50 something people. Um, and so that's been really incredible to make sure that we, you know, this isn't considered theatrics. It's, it's very practical. They're involved in the whole process. So explaining UX while you're doing UX, you know, delivering UX while you're delivering UX, um, that is definitely a way to incorporate change management in the organization and, and prevent people from doing theater and correcting them when they propose things that are theater. And you say, no, remember when we did it this way? 
Mm. I was going to say, you um, you mentioned showing the value of UX, and now you've talked about the uh, delivering on 200 or 250. You know, like you've you've shown the value, but here now, I guess you've shown you've shown the value of the service, mm-hmm. and you know, rather than kind of show the value of UX in itself. So I mean, or what are you doing? Are you context? Yeah, exactly. So, so, so then you've got to. Do you? How do you connect it to the actual UX? You know what I mean? I was Mm -hmm. showing the value of UX, but you're showing the value of the service you've produced using UX methods. So, can you make sure they do the connection back to the work, good work you did? Um, Is it just the evangelists, or is there a, is there another way that you succeed and have succeeded? Um, That's a great question. Um, So we. When we deliver different components, when we deliver different pieces, we will show them, um, we'll actually take quotes and things or, or outputs from the various design sessions and, and highlight them so that they can see how their work and their involvement in the design process has moved this forward. We tie it back to data that they're bringing us about the, about the users as well so that they can see how we've incorporated that feedback into in service design improvements. And then in terms of moving the actual service forward, um, we do keep track of how the service is evolving so that they can see where we originally started from and where we're heading. So we try to do it both internally and externally um, so that they can see the value of UX on both sides. And that helps us convince the executives to give us the space to do things. Um, There's a service that we'll be launching later this year, which I've been working on for two years. And, you know, even just trying to explain why we were doing a service test before we did an, a pilot with a full-size cohort was difficult to to get buy-in for, but we just we just went ahead and we kept railroading and we just did it because it was very small, it was very low risk. Um, and then eventually by just kind of repeating ourselves over and over again, we were able to finally explain like why we were doing it in two sections, what the value of each test was going to give us, what we were testing, producing reports with basically report cards in them that showed this tested well, this tested well, this is the areas that need improvement. So even how we're packaging the results of the work that we're doing helps us to inform everyone around us of what the value is of taking these steps and actually doing the work. So um, so a lot of the, I, I refer to packaging a lot with my team, you know, how are we going to package this so that it gets seen, it gets read, it gets understood, especially because I don't have the access to people far above me to be able to go and present these things and explain them to them. So packaging for us is one way that we evangelize as well. And documentation is your friend, right? It's whatever is going to get seen and read, um, with enough context to be able to show value. Um, that's something we think about a lot as well. So we don't just think about doing the work and delivering the work. We also think about a bit of the legacy of the work. How do we document this? How do we educate the people above us to make sure they will provide us with the space to do this again in the future because it is so valuable? Yeah, so you're being clear about what you're trying to achieve. You're also being clear about how you're going to know you've achieved mm-hmm. it and then you're actually creating a story from the artifacts you've collected on the way to evangelize and to push your your longer term goals i guess for with design and ux and service design yeah this is a long game and story is a big piece we do think a lot we do a lot of empathy mapping for internal work 
Um, so we actually will sit down and think about, you know, what have we heard in the past and, and where, what are the messages that they're hearing now and where do we need to bring them? And then what's the best way for us to deliver that story? Um, we will spend a lot of time even designing workshops um, because we want to make sure that the people who are coming into those sessions internally feel valued and that they will focus on the right things and we can move it forward. So we do a lot of forward thinking, you know, what is it that we want to do the day after the workshop? What outputs will we need? How will, how would we get there? Um, so even just designing the, putting a lot of thought to designing the interactions that we have internally and, and making sure that we're following a process that they will also follow, but also we're not letting them go off too far, you know, outside where we want them to go. So kind of controlling the experience a little bit through the way that we design the activities to make sure that the discussions are focused because we don't have much time with them, but also so that they can actually feel like they did something when they leave the session, which will entice them to come back and participate in the next session. So we do a lot of that work and we spend a lot of time designing internal interactions so that we can push the culture change. And that's something that I'm not sure happens on a regular basis with other teams. I haven't seen that, I haven't had that luxury of time in all my projects. I've had it for the last few years, but that's because I've been hired by people who've come to get me and ask me to participate in things. So they already know what my method is before they hire me. I think when I was hired, um, you know, a little bit more traditionally you you don't necessarily have that trust relationship with the people who are hiring you so i've i've had uh, i've had a really great experience for the last i would say five seven years where i've had the space to do this because people understand this is my methodology and they're specifically hiring me to be able to do this and mm -hmm. they understand their organizations need this push towards ux maturity so it gives me more space to be able to do it it is a lot harder when you're a practitioner and you're that lonely little person who's trying to push these things along. But there are things you can do individually as an individual contributor to move your organization forward, even if you don't have this level of, of support and, and, you know, I guess power is the wrong word, but, you know, influence. Yeah, well, it's, it's power. But that's, such a, that's a, <laughs> such a great example of doing things the right way and, and, and really spending time on, on planning and evaluating your own work, which is fantastic. But sometimes things will break down and you'll be looking around. Well, all we're doing is UX theater here and I don't know what to do about it. And I think you have some great tips. And one of my favorite is to document the lack of user involvement because this I don't see a lot of UXers doing. I have done it once actually, but mostly around accessibility in, in that we, I, really, I wanted to write a document. We haven't done this and I'm sad about not having done this, but then I want it on, in writing. But tell, tell us a bit uh, more about that. How, how do we document <laughs> doing the wrong thing? <laughs> so um, obviously, I'm, I'm sure it's not a surprise. I'm, I'm, a, I'm pretty hard-headed and have a lot of opinions. And so even when I was younger, when I was really starting out early in my career um, and I was working in high tech, if I thought we should do something, I would put it in writing and I would put it in a plan. And, and I figured, you know, it's an Easter egg. Like maybe it'll slip through or maybe somebody will like it and they'll approve it and then we'll get to do it. And if not, okay, cool. I still have a copy of that. It's kind of like writing a portfolio, right? Like I still have a copy of what I intended to do. And, and if it didn't happen, I still have that draft that I sent up where I planted the seed. And I would keep doing that, keep doing that. And then eventually sometimes they would actually get 
get approved. And I realize you can do that on the other side too, where you where you can say, we really should be doing X, Y, Z, right? So you put it in your plan, it gets taken out. And so then from that point on, you can put it in your risk register. You can put it in your, you know, in your lessons learned document. So your risk register, if you have a little risk section in all of your in all of your documents, in all of your project plans where you're identifying what your current risks are you can identify that not doing usability testing with actual users is a risk because, and it doesn't have to be a rant, it can just be a, a bullet point, but it will get carried through your whole project. The other thing is in government, especially um, where we have a lot of turnover, there's a huge lack of corporate memory. And so a lot of previous documentation becomes that corporate memory. So being able to record in something, I wanted to do this or the team wanted to do this and we were unable to and it became a risk. And then in your lessons learned, being able to say, you know, we were unable to do this and these were the outcomes that becomes corporate memory for the people who are coming after you. And that makes for a great starting point for the next project where the next person coming up behind you can ask the questions of, hey, I noticed that there was this risk. Why was testing not done? And is that something we're gonna be able to do this time? So I find that, um, uh, especially in areas where you have a lot of turnover um, or, or in areas where you do have a lot of, uh, a lot of hierarchy and decision-making, the more you document, the more you have a paper trail for what you tried to do. And we always encourage UXers in their design portfolios to include you know, the intended concepts, even if that's not what actually happened. And it can show that you actually understand the design process, right? Here's the plan that I had proposed. This is the approach that I wanted to take. And even if it's not what the organization did, it shows that you personally actually understand how the design methodology works. And, and I think that's really beneficial for people to, to insist on putting it in and, and creating those lessons, but also demonstrating like, I do have the skills and knowledge just because I don't have the capacity to implement them mm. doesn't mean that I yeah. don't personally have the skills and knowledge. Yeah. And that will make you yourself feel better, of course, as well. Fantastic. So much good advice and so many good insights. Um, uh, thank you for joining us, Tanya. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. There are so many artifacts in our profession and in our industry, like personas and journey maps, and we keep doing all these workshops and we have all these post-it notes, and it, it always looks like we're producing a lot of stuff and we're being very uh, active, even though we may not actually be producing something that is of value, but more our assumptions and guesswork. Uh, it's, it's almost like our profession is built to, to actually fall into this trap all the time. I, I think I love the, the, the way Tanya used role-playing yeah. uh, to describe what it is we do. I mean, okay, UX theater is one thing, but, but that many of the situations, like you just said now, that we hold workshops with stakeholders Mm. not actual users and that workshop then becomes i mean i said proxy when we're talking about it in the interview but we're effectively role-playing users in those workshops to decide what to do mm. instead of actually doing the real stuff you know things we think about users and then our interpretation of what people think about that is then becoming the basis for design which is just crazy but it's happening all the time Every time, every time you mm. pull out a component in your Figma design mm. library and, and put it into a design, you're role-playing the user. You're presuming mm. that control is going to be successful unless you then test it. Yeah. 
I think uh, in, in retrospectives now, I think we should actually be really concerned about trying to gauge and ask people how much actually true UX work are we doing? So actually ask people how they feel about their own work it's to always have some number or some indicator of what, what we perceive ourselves doing so that we can talk about it openly. Uh, that's, that's a good point. I've, mm. In some um, teams I've worked with, mm. when, especially when trying to mature them, um, then I've, I've used the, um, I've written on the wall, on the whiteboard, or even brought up at like, you know, daily meetings, um, how many days it's been since we last talked to a user. Mm. Yeah. You know, because if it's in a mature organization, it's going to be zero all the time. Um, but it's often not. And exactly. You're going to really be, good. So mm. it's going to be ticking up. It's getting to like mm. 10 days. And then you're plowing on. You're producing all this stuff. Mm. You're doing all this work. You, everyone's kind mm. of working like crazy. Mm. Now it's got to 20 days. It's got to 30 days. Mm. Yeah, and, and that That's a real good visualization for me. That shows you your... Oh, I you want know. something physical. I w I'm thinking ping pong balls now. So add a ping pong ball somewhere. And that builds up. And you have this massive space in the room being taken up by ping pong balls. Because that's the number of days since you talked to a user. Oh, yeah. No, exactly. You could something. <laughs> you can't just visual. avoid it. You cannot yeah, avoid it. Yeah. <laughs> oh. But even, it's even when interesting, you... It's like a negative metric, but it's still, a, it's still something like a metric or yeah. a visual reminder, mm. a visual indication of mm. how in touch with your users you are. Exactly. And I think even if you do the work, uh, I always make an effort, like if I do a usability test, I did the usability test, but be honest about it. Reason around your confidence levels. How confident are you that the findings that you have are representative across a larger population and what people aren't we talking to and, and bring that into the report as well. So always be honest about what you're doing. Mm. Oh, now, you, mm. now you're getting into the whole kind of like um, self-reflection um, and metacognition, which mm. that is an episode in itself. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, what Tanya said at the very end to us um, about teaching UX while doing UX um, is, is also a very worthwhile sentence and important thing to take mm. with you. That, um, yet we're spending a lot of time doing UX theater and role playing and, and uh, not talking to users. Um, but as, as Tanya indicated, part of the solution or an important part of that solution is to, to almost secretly teach UX while seen to be doing UX. Um, I'm being I'm being transparent about the the value that you've delivered, um, as she was in her work. Yeah. So show notes, including the links mentioned in this episode, and a full transcript can be found on uxpodcast.com, and perhaps even where you are listening right now. So click follow, subscribe, or add, if you aren't already doing so. Ah, just like mathematics. Just do some mathematics if you're already doing so. Um, <laughs> join us again for our next episode. <laughs> and if you'd like to contribute to funding UX Podcast, visit uxpodcast.com slash support. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. I know two people 
who both claim to live in the building where Shakespeare wrote Romeo and Juliet. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, they're planning to put a plaque on both their houses. It was, wasn't it? 